Well, good afternoon and welcome to A Reason for Hope. This is a weekly, weekday, <laughs> a weekday. A every, weekly weekday. Every day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> Eight days a week. No, that was a Beatles song. Monday through Friday. <laughs> if you're at work... We are doing it. <laughs> yeah. It's called The Reason for Hope. It's a Bible answer program. We've been doing this since about 2001. We are broadcasting live right out of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, Arizona. I'm in studio with your senior pastor, Scott Richards. Here we are. How yeah. are you? I'm doing great. You just flew over here uh, down from the other side of town. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's been it's been quite a commute. The uh, Calvary Chapel Pastors Conference is going on. and so uh, we went over and uh, spent some time at our Reason for All booth. So if uh, you are attending the conference, be sure to stop by and say hi. Uh, one member, at least one member, maybe two, of our team for sure will be there to uh, greet you and answer any questions that you have. I'll be there tomorrow and Wednesday. Today I just had too much work here in the office. Plus I'm doing this. And You can meet <laughs> Adrian Van Vactor in person. And I would recommend if you do, have him bamboozle you with a magic trick. I will be in booth. I'll have my book. I'll have my little box of tricks. And and, uh, and bamboozling will be afoot. It'll, <laughs> it'll be fun. Yeah. Well, we encourage you to join us and ask questions about the Christian worldview. Uh, perhaps there's a scripture passage that you are <laughs> befuddled by and you want to understand a deeper context, a deeper uh, meaning of the text, uh, depending on whether it's something that... Uh, you're just not quite sure how to apply to your life, or maybe you just understand what it means in the context of uh, biblical theology or biblical doctrine, um, <clears throat> or maybe just uh, what other religions teach. Are all religions the same, or is there um, a divergence of truth? How do we answer these questions? Well, that's why we do this every day, so that we can give you reasons for the hope that we have in Christ. Now, there's multiple ways that you can uh, engage with us. Uh, you can go to Facebook. We live stream this broadcast as well as all of our services to Facebook. <clears throat> and our Facebook handle is at CCF Tucson. So if you go to facebook.com forward slash at CCF Tucson, you'll find us there. We also live stream to YouTube. If you just do a YouTube search, A Reason for Hope. And if you find us, uh, please subscribe and hit the notification bell. And if you do watch us on any of the social media platforms, we would encourage you to like, subscribe, share, comment, ask questions. Anything you do engagement-wise will encourage others to engage with us and grow our audience because our goal is to reach as many people as possible with the gospel. Our YouTube handle is a reason for hope 546. Also, I'd encourage you to follow Pastor Scott Richards on Twitter. You could even ask questions on Twitter if you want that we can tackle here on the program. His Twitter handle is at ScottR4H. That's at ScottR, the number four, the letter H on Twitter. So you can tweet at him and yes. he will tweet back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. with, with varying degrees of uh, mirth and uh, merriment. Yes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> we also have a website where if you want to forego social media platforms, uh, just go to calvarychristianfellowship.com, go to the Watch Live tab, click that, and it'll take you to this program, as well as all of our services where you can watch live in real time, as well as ask questions, even make prayer requests. And uh, we have, really exciting, <clears throat> a Bible app. This app has a digital Bible. It also has our events calendar, um, our current sermons, even sermon archives, you can uh, join prayer groups, message boards, that kind of thing. Very, very robust, pretty exciting little app that we have. You can download it from the iTunes or Google Play Store. 
You can also watch our services on the Amazon Fire products as well as Roku, wherever those may be found. <clears throat> and if you would rather just be a little anonymous or just simply the old-fashioned way, email us. Uh, that's a questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can email us questionsforhope, all spelled out, no numbers, at gmail.com. Before we tackle your questions for today, why don't we take a moment to pray and ask the Lord to be with us so that, yeah, let's uh, do that. we don't answer on our own accord. Yeah. Uh, Father, I thank you for this opportunity we have to be able to explore your word together. And Lord, uh, what an exciting adventure it is. I just feel sometimes like uh, we're, we're setting out to sea and, and uh, we're going to be uh, visiting into places that we couldn't even anticipate when we began our journey each and every day. Lord, we pray you'd uh, fill our sails, uh, guide us uh, with your hand, lead us into those subjects and those areas of truth uh, and personal application that you would have in mind for your people. Thank you, Lord, for the awesome things that you're doing. Thank you, God, that we live in such exciting times, uh, literally on the edge of the return of your son. We pray that you would give us that Maranatha of spirit, that passion uh, to see you face to face, Lord. May that motivate us to uh, be found digging into your truth, especially in a time where uh, we do not want to underestimate uh, the power of deception and lies uh, that can uh, be surrounding us at all times. Help your word to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, ministered to by your Holy Spirit, because without you guiding us into truth, Lord, uh, we're beat before we start. But thank you, Lord. You're far more anxious for us to understand who you are in spirit and in truth than we are in even being here. So meet us here. Guide us. And uh, may the conversation today bring glory to your name, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, um, do you want to go straight to questions or? Well, right off the top, uh, before we get to question, I don't know if you have a question about it or not, but uh, we are entering into a really uh, significant uh, feast day on the Jewish calendar. It's the Feast of Purim. Uh, the, the, the word Purim literally means lots, uh, believe it or not, like the casting of lots, like the casting of dice. Uh, and it goes back to uh, the, it's sort of a recap, an acted out recap of the book of Esther. Now, the book of Esther is a, a really fascinating book on a number of levels uh, because it is uh, one of the few books of the Bible, in fact, the only book of the Bible, that doesn't mention the name of God uh, directly. Uh, but uh, I remember uh, sitting uh, or taking in a, a Bible study on the book of Esther, and the, uh, the name of the study in general uh, was uh, that uh, providence is more than a city in Rhode Island. And uh, the idea of the unseen hand of God guiding and protecting God's people is uh, all over uh, the book of Esther and the Feast of Purim by extension. Now, they uh, really condensed um, thumbnail sketch of what the book of Esther is all about, if you're not familiar with it. Uh, in the book of Esther, the people of Israel uh, have uh, been in exile in Babylon. Uh, the Babylonian government has fallen to the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, there are a number of Jews who've returned to uh, Israel by this time. But the vast majority are still there in the previous provinces of Babylon, which are now a part of the Medo-Persian Empire. Well, uh, in the Medo-Persian Empire, there was a man named Haman who was an Amalekite by uh, lineage. The Amalekites, one of the most vicious and brutal enemies of Israel down through time. Uh, and this fellow rose to the point where he was the prime minister to a Persian king by the name of Ahasuerus. Uh, Haman uh, 
was insulted when a Jewish leader by the name of Mordecai failed to fall on his knees and bow down to him when he went by in a procession. Apparently, he thought uh, he'd been dissed, wasn't getting his propers there. And so Haman uh, is just obsessing on this and goes to his wife and is complaining about it. And his wife says, well, you're the prime minister. Why don't you drop a law and get rid of all those Jews? So Haman goes, beautiful, perfect idea. So he goes into King Ahasuerus and says, oh, you know, those Jews, uh, they are rebellious. Uh, They don't pay attention to your commands. Oh, king, uh, really, I think we'd be a lot better off without them totally. And got the king to agree to a genocidal decree to wipe out every Jew in the Medo-Persian Empire. Well, to set the date, when he was going to kick off that genocide, believe it or not, uh, Haman uh, rolled dice, cast lots, uh, hence the name Purim, because he cast lots and uh, came up with uh, the day on the calendar that he was going to launch his genocide against the Jewish people. Well, uh, unbeknownst to Haman, Ahasuerus' queen was a woman by the name of Esther, her Jewish name Hadassah, uh, she, uh, was selected as being the most beautiful woman in the land, replaced, uh, a, uh, a former wife of a Hazarus who refused to, uh, well, strut her stuff. If you want to use that term in front of the King's guest at a party he was using as a PR stunt, uh, to try to distract everybody from the fact that the Greeks had, uh, well, kicked his rear end in a, in a battle. Mm. Uh, so, uh, again, uh, Hadassah, uh, Esther, uh, was the new queen. Well, Haman, nor Ahasuerus, had no idea that she was Jewish. Now, the other interesting thing, and here we see the providential hand of God at work, is that Mordecai was Hadassah's uncle, uh, had raised his niece as as his own daughter after hmm. Esther's parents had passed away. Well, from that comes the famous line. Mordecai comes to uh, Esther and says, you got to go to the king. Uh, and he, Esther goes, well, you know, if I go to the king uh, without him summoning me, my life is going to be forfeit. And Haman utters the famous line. He said, uh, you know, if uh, you uh, refuse to go to the king, uh, deliverance will come from somewhere else. And then he says, perhaps you've been raised up for such a time as this. Mm. And uh, once again, God's name isn't directly mentioned, but his fingerprints literally are all over this. Well, uh, Esther uh, makes the bold statement, and uh, Hazarus is glad to see her. Hadn't seen her for over a month. Very glad to see her, welcomes her in. And she says, oh, King, can I make a request of you? I want to uh, throw a dinner party for you and for your prime minister, just to uh, show how how much I appreciate you guys. And so she does. And uh, again, uh, Mordecai, uh, thinks that this is great. Uh, you know, the whole royal family is uh, behind, uh, uh, you know, uh, him and, and his, his plans and so on. Uh, I, I should also mention that uh, Mordecai was instrumental in foiling an assassination plot against Ahasuerus uh, that was coming from inside his own court. And uh, when, uh, you know, the king was reading through some of his, uh, his uh, memos and, and memoranda, he came across this and uh, <laughs> Haman came in and he said, what should be done for a man who has uh, rendered uh, invaluable service to a king? And he says, oh, well, a parade should be 
uh, shown for me should be clothed in purple and given a gold necklace and and because he thought he was talking about himself. And then he goes, great. Uh, why don't you do that for Mordecai? And then you can go in front of the parade and say, you know, this guy is, this is what happens to uh, the one who serves the king. And, and so again, Haman is just boiling at this point. He's just so mad he can't see straight. So Esther has the first party, doesn't say much, then requests a second party with the king right up against the date, the launch date for the assassination, the genocide against the Jews. Uh, time's running out. And, uh, you know, he said, uh, you know, King, uh, you know, I'm, I, I, she, he says, what's wrong? He says, well, King, you know, it's hard for me to be my normal joyful self because um, there's someone in your kingdom who wants to wipe out all my people. And the king goes, what? Um, who are your people? And she says, the Jews. He goes, who's the man? <laughs> it's like, that, that guy right there. Well, Mordecai has already built this staggeringly high Eiffel Tower-like uh, gallows to hang, uh, I should say Haman has built this thing to hang uh, Mordecai on to show people what happens when you cross Haman. And the king throws an eight-day fit and says, uh, you're going to get hung on that gallows. But the laws of the Medes and the Persians, remember that from Daniel, mm -hmm. couldn't be changed or altered. <clears throat> so the king issued another decree saying that it was okay for the Jews to arm themselves and defend themselves from anyone that would attack them on this day of Purim, when the lots were cast. Mm. So uh, God ends up delivering uh, the Jewish people. Mordecai is promoted in the kingdom. And we see how, you know, across the board, even though the Jewish people were sent into exile in Babylon and in the Medo-Persian Empire, God always had a shepherd over them. In the Babylonian sense, it was Daniel. In uh, the Medo-Persian sense, it was Daniel and then giving way to a guy like Mordecai, who was always there to preserve the Jewish people. So really a, an amazing book. Well, the Feast of Purim acts all of this out. And uh, there's there's all kinds of quaint uh, uh, like celebrations. Giving out of camps, almost like a version of Halloween. Yeah, it is. Um, there's a, uh, a, a version of sweets called Haman's Ears <laughs> that kids are encouraged to eat. <laughs> and uh, when the story of Esther is told, uh, this is another interesting part of the feast. Whenever Mordecai's name is mentioned, everybody shouts and uh, and applauds. Whenever Haman's name is mentioned, they even have these wooden clackers that are supposed to drown out his name, and they boo and they hiss and, and so on. Uh, th there's another aspect of it where uh, you're supposed to uh, drink enough so that you get so schnockered that uh, you uh, slur your words to the point where you're not saying uh, cursed is Haman anymore, you're saying blessed is, is Mordecai uh, in this, this particular setting. Wow. Now, <clears throat> New Testament-wise, uh, there's evidence to suggest that in John chapter 5 and verse 1, uh, when Jesus went to uh, the pool of Bethesda and, and did the miraculous healing there, it was on the Feast of the Jews. Uh, scholars believe that the Feast of the Jews being mentioned there was Purim, uh, and it's a really interesting oversight and insight into what's going on there because uh, the unseen hand of God is highlighted in that particular passage. The idea that an angel would stir up the water and provide a healing, uh, you know, whether that was superstition or not, we really don't know. Uh, but it certainly has that, that oversight. You've got a guy who is waiting and waiting and waiting 
on God for decades mm -hmm. to find his healing to no avail. And then God intervenes through the person of Jesus mm -hmm. and heals this man. Uh, so uh, fascinating stuff indeed. Our good friend Joel Rosenberg on his allisrael.com website uh, offers this suggestion as well. One of the things that you do on Purim is you're supposed to give gifts to poor people, uh, sending food to friends, uh, having a big meal, but uh, also uh, to, uh, according to uh, Joel Rosenberg, uh, be praying for the deliverance of Israel from a new enemy from Medo-Persia, that is the Iranians, who, by the way, according to another article uh, online in the Jerusalem Post today, uh, are estimated to be 12 days away from having a fun functional nuke. So um, there you go. Uh, very fascinating time for sure. And uh, one thing that we as, as believers in Christ can certainly take away from all of this is that sometimes, I, you know, maybe you'll bear me witness on this, uh, Adrian, but sometimes in my life where through human eyes, I have not been able to see God working, uh, have been precisely those times looking back on things where he has mm -hmm. been working the most. Um, sometimes I think he doesn't tell us exactly what his plans are. Uh, the old uh, adage, uh, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. Mm. Uh, certainly, I think if you've been a Christian for any length of time, uh, you go through en enough of those, wow, it just so happens situations where you see that God not only guides us according to his word, certainly does, through the power of his Holy Spirit, but also through his sovereign hand. Every day of our life is written in his book when there is not yet one of them. And uh, sometimes I think we lose sight of uh, that providential care of God. But um, if you want a great passage of scripture mm. to go through that will remind you just how well cared for we are by the providential mm. hand of God, uh, I'd encourage you to, uh, before you hit the hay tonight, read Psalm 23. Mm. Very beautiful picture. It's been called the song of a contented sheep because... Mm. Uh, the, the whole thing, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then it goes on and it details all the ways that God takes care of us from where we are right now, through the ups and downs of life, even through the valley of the shadow of death, uh, when people are praising us, when people are putting us down. But I love the end. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, <laughs> not necessarily lead me, but follow me all mm -hmm. the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The reason I love that follow me thing is that sometimes we're in the midst of trials we can't see ahead to how things are going to work out. But one thing that I think is really key when we're going through a difficult time, if you're going through a difficult time out there, let me uh, encourage you with this. Think back to a time where God really saved your bacon, where he really intervened in your life in that providential kind of a way, uh, and remember how clueless you were before you saw God's deliverance. But then afterwards, if you're like me and you see the hand of God and there's providence and, and all, uh, you look back and they go, what was I worried about? God had done this before. He's going to do it again. You know, and that's what real faith is all about. It's that God will do it again. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to commit my, my way and my path to him, even when it doesn't make any sense to me. I know God has a purpose and a plan, as Chuck Smith mm -hmm. uh, always told us. And uh, his plans are for welfare, not for calamity, to give us a future and a hope. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. I I can give you three things that at probably the, one of the darkest times of feeling not abandoned by God, but just God not seemingly present, 
resulted in me being at this church, finding my wife or meeting my wife, and now our three beautiful boys. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, I never saw that coming. <laughs> well, I could I could tell you a, a long involved story about how uh, God literally moved heaven and earth and got people half a country away involved uh, to uh, get me to the Mayo Clinic for my mm. cancer treatment, uh, putting my my mm. surgery in the hands of perhaps the most skilled surgeon in this particular kind of cancer I was dealing with in the entire world, um, you know, just through so-called happenstance. I mean, mm-hmm. I could tell you other stories. Uh, we, we'd be here all day. But, you know, before you go to bed tonight, think about one of those stories. Think mm-hmm. about one of those just-so-happened kind of stories where the Lord guided and directed you. And, and I think you're going to find that very encouraging. Indeed. Yeah. Thank you. <clears throat> well, Paula wants to know, Isaiah 6, 1 through 7, since there is an altar in heaven, is it for angels? What kind of animals get sacrificed in heaven if animals exist in heaven? Did angels have to make some kind of sacrifice for their sins if they could repent? Well, um, A, uh, just to explore this and get down to the nub of things, A, angels cannot repent. Um, we are told that God does not give aid to angels in Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, the angels are on a different standard in terms of their rebellion against God. We rebel against God. We get the chance to turn around. But understand something. The angels beheld the glory of God. Uh, they, they had no excuse whatsoever uh, for the decisions that they made. And so uh, angelic beings did apparently at a particular point in time have an opportunity to choose to be elect angels, that is to say yes to a relationship with God because the angels love the Lord and admire and respect him just like we do. They're sentient beings, if you will, and because they they have the ability to be able to think and choose, they had that opportunity to say yes or no to a relationship with God. When Satan fell in love uh, with his own attributes, and you can read through Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah 14 for a little bit of up close and personal view of how Satan's uh, ego got the best of him. His own gifts ended up being his own downfall. Uh, But uh, when Satan fell and rebelled against God, chose to want to be God himself, uh, according to passages like Revelation chapter 12, strong evidence to suggest that one-third of the angels followed Satan in his rebellion there. Uh, It's uh, an important thing to note that two-thirds of the angels didn't follow Satan in his rebellion. But understand, once that decision was made, and I believe that decision uh, was made somewhere between the end of Genesis chapter 1 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 3. Why? Because the last verses of Genesis chapter 1 tell us that God saw everything that he made, and it was very good. The whole creation was very good. There was no fault, no flaw, no imperfection to be found whatsoever. And, uh, and so somewhere between that declaration of a perfect creation without any sin, without any death, without any deception, uh, perfect environment, perfect conditions, somewhere between there and Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent comes on the scene, uh, the fall of Satan and his angels took place. So having said that, uh, getting back to Isaiah chapter 6, we have to understand that uh, when we take a look at Isaiah chapter 6, we are seeing uh, God giving uh, Isaiah a vision. Uh, God is communicating something very important to Isaiah. 
We are told, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, the first thing that Isaiah has shown there is God in his position of control and majesty. Uh, I think that's significant because uh, King Uzziah uh, was a uh, pretty good king. Uh, the guy who followed up after him, Ahaz, not so much. Uh, and so Isaiah loved uh, Uzziah, you know, and maybe had put a little <clears throat> bit of his security in this political ruler. And what's going to happen to us now? His kid who's going to come to the throne certainly ain't like his old man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so God was showing Isaiah first and foremost by this vision of him on this throne uh, that he was in charge of the affairs of Israel, that there was no re- need to worry. God's plan was going to be fulfilled. It says above it stood seraphim. That literally means burning ones. Uh, Hebrews chapter one tells us that God makes his messengers flames of fire. So these are literally fiery creatures reflecting mm. the absolute purity and holiness of God in their, at their essential nature. We are told each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Well, in the presence of this absolute holiness, right, Isaiah's sin stands out like a sore thumb. It's like walking into one of those restaurant bathrooms with a fluorescent light and all the flaws and imperfection on your face jump out at you. Well, Isaiah saw uh, his own sin for what it was, and felt like he was undone, felt like he was going to die. God was going to vaporize him on the spot because God was holy and he was anything but. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Now notice something about the altar here. Uh, Here we see the fact that, that this coal from the altar touched Isaiah, particularly at his point of confession of sin. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. That was first and foremost in Isaiah's mind as far as his falling short of the glory of God. The coal touches his lips. His sin is atoned for. Notice there was no animal sacrifice involved with it. Merely the coals of that altar that are there in heaven were sufficient enough to provide Isaiah with the cleansing that he needed. And and so uh, when people will say, well, it's an altar, animals were killed on altars, um, we may be making a jump from earthly reality where the wages of sin is death, Mm. where the sacrificial system was put in place to illustrate that that reality. Uh, When one would offer an animal sacrifice, you know, it's fascinating. Uh, they would lay hands on the sacrifice. And it wasn't just like, you know, pat, pat, here's, here's my goat, here's my bull, you know. It was, you would lean on the whole thing as the priest would kill the sacrifice. You would mm. lean on it with all of your weight. It was your way of saying, this should be me. Mm. This is what I have coming to me. But these sacrifices could only cover over sins, we're told in the book of Hebrew. They could never take them away. Mm-hmm. It was only a foreshadowing of God's ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And so just as Jesus suffered on a cross here on earth, but didn't suffer on some kind of eternal cross in heaven, so we see that altar there representing God's ability to cleanse and forgive the purity of God. Again, the fiery coals, that picture of the seraphim reflecting the holiness of God, this agent that can communicate the holiness of God, particularly at the point of unholiness in the life of Isaiah. That's what's in view there. So, you know, to superimpose upon that the idea that there must be some kind of heavenly animals sacrificed there, something the scripture never says. And where the scripture is silent, we should probably be silent too. Well, thanks for the question, Paula. That's a good one. Is there a parallel, you think, between that and what Paul shared with the Corinthians of how our works would be tested by fire? Yeah. Once we stand in judgment, the idea of Absolutely. going through the, the coals, so to speak. Yeah, mm-hmm. or uh, the the mind-blowing statement at the end of Hebrews 12, our God is a consuming fire. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what do we know about fire? Well, fire will either vaporize or purify, mm-hmm. depending on what it's exposed to. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it said that our lives, what we build in our lives, uh, upon the foundation of faith we have in Jesus, you know, what we do with our lives after we've received Christ, are either going to be building on that foundation with wood, hay, and straw, or gold, silver, and precious stones. Wood, hay, and straw, when exposed to fire, will be vaporized. And Paul says that on that day, the very fiery presence of God will show what uh, what man's work, what each man's work is like uh, during that time. Anything that is done by faith in God. You know, uh, there's the old saw, uh, there's only life will soon be passed, mm. only what is done for Christ will last. Well, I think we could alter that a little bit. Only what is done through Christ will last. Mm. You know, Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, uh, I've been crucified with Christ. I myself no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In other words, when God moves through our lives, when by faith we trust in him mm. uh, to speak his word, to reach out and love to people, when he supplies that, these are things which will last forever. Anything that we do with the arm of the flesh, even worthy religious actions, if we do it for God as a way of saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to show you it was a good deal. Jesus died for me. That's wood, hay, and straw mm. because ultimately it's a work of man and uh, God won't bless the flesh, if you will, even well-intentioned flesh. The only thing he's going to bless is the 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 works that he does through the Spirit. So, you know, my suggestion, uh, if you want to get in on that sort of thing, is before your feet hit the carpet in the morning, ask the Lord to fill you with the power of his Holy mm. Spirit. Yesterday at, at Calvary Christian Fellowship, we had an amazing uh, Sunday morning where people just, after every service, just one after another, we just continue to worship in between services and people came forward and received the coming upon power of the Holy Spirit. We were as uh, pastors and staff were laying hands upon mm-hmm. them to receive that, that empowering work. Mm-hmm. And, and when that empowering work goes to work in our lives, that's when the Christian life gets really exciting. It's not the path to burnout. It's the path to blessing. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, um, we'll find out in the very fiery presence of God, uh, what he did, and what he didn't, like Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3, this one thing I know, what God does lasts forever. Mm-hmm. I, I'd add an addendum to that in uh, First Scott chapter 1. I know whatever Scott does in his power of the flesh mm-hmm. ain't going to last 15 minutes. So, uh, I yeah. love the way Paul iterates that in Philippians where he talks about how he was the Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee, 
he gives his credentials, and he says, whatever things were gained to me, I've counted it as lost for the sake of Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in right. me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Yeah. I probably mailed it a few there, but... Uh, no, that <clears> was great. <laughs> that, that's what the Christian life's all about. <clears throat> but isn't it funny how easily we miss that? How easily we can just get into our routines, our <clears throat> rituals, even, you know, our, our flesh is kind of sneaky. If your flesh is, your fallen nature is like mine how easily it can come even in those moments where the Lord's using me. And, and uh, in a sense, I say to God, okay, God, thanks. I'll take it from here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. God's like, mm, no. Very, very yeah. easy, especially when you're <clears throat> in the mouthpiece position in ministry or something like that. It's very easy to let the spotlight blind you and miss seeing God. Well, as, <laughs> as, as you knew in your ministry, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like one of those things <clears throat> where, uh, you know, you're, you're rolling along and the spirit's moving and mm-hmm. then this awful thought crosses your mind. Hey, mm-hmm. that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> and then kaboom. <laughs> Fortunately, God has kept a consistent stream of humility throughout the years. <laughs> <laughs> well, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, because if you don't humble yourself, God will do it. And yeah. he is very, indeed. very good yeah, indeed. at humbling us. Well, thanks for the question, Paula. Uh, Mike wants to know if you desire to have a relationship with God and to read the word and other godly things, but lack the willpower to put those things first, even though you desire to, how does someone overcome this? Great question. Well, uh, you know, Mike, the thing that I would share with you is you're certainly not alone. Uh, No less an individual than the Apostle Paul struggled with the very same thing. Mm -hmm. In uh, the book of Romans chapter 7, we are told uh, that... uh, uh, the idea of trying to please God, wanting to please God, was something that the Apostle Paul experienced directly. Uh, you know, he said this uh, in verse 14 of Romans chapter 7, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, that is, I'm fleshly, sold under sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. But what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If I then do, uh, do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Mm. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law, is that, a law, the evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. A wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. You know, Adrian, I don't know about you, but those words seem really, really familiar to me. I mean, these are things that I have gone through in my own heart. Yeah. You know, I sometimes I am just befuddled at the things that I think, the things that I say, even the things that I do. And uh, it's just amazing uh, how we believe God's word, we love God's word, we love uh, those times when the Lord is using us, but there's still that fallenness in us that gets a hold of us. Now, I think it's really interesting. Uh, there are those who look at this passage 
and they will say, well, this is Paul <clears throat> when he was a Pharisee and he was trying to do mm-hmm. the will of God in his own strength. And he's just showing that, you know, without a uh, genuine relationship with Christ, such things are impossible. That's what I was well, taught in my ministerial studies. Well, really interesting. He never says, "Bless uh, wretched man that I was. It's mm-hmm. all present tense yeah. verbs here. He says, wretched man that I am. Uh, over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he said, uh, it is a trustworthy saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I was chief. No, I am chief. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I think that we discover in our walk with God is that uh, the longer we go on and the more we get to know God and the more we get to know his holiness, kind of like Isaiah, the closer you draw to him, Mm. the more the faults and the flaws and the imperfections in us start to become a lot more obvious. You know, I remember not long after I became a Christian, uh, you know, so much changed in my life. You know, you talk about being born again. I mean, I went from being an atheist to believing in God. You know, my language cleared up. Uh, you know, I, I didn't want to drink anymore and things like that. And I remember one day uh, about six months in thinking, man, if this keeps up in another year or so, I'm going to be just like Jesus. <laughs> and I'm sure the Lord was looking from heaven and saying, oh, isn't he cute? You know, and it was funny. At that time, I was uh, working uh, with my grandparents' real estate company, and they had this avocado uh, orchard property that they were managing. And we'd go out, and we had to keep the weeds down and keep the irrigation pipes running and, and all of this and harvest the avocados and trim them back and things like this. And there was this one area that was just, uh, it was this uh, little uh, ditch that was just loaded with weeds. And this was before weed whackers and all this stuff. All I had was like this scythe kind of thing. And I would go in there and I'd just be hacking these weeds down. And it was kind of satisfying in a way because you could see you're really making progress. You could whack all those weeds down and suddenly, you know, the place was cleared out. But the funny thing was within a week or two, all those weeds would be right back. Mm. You know why? Because I didn't get them out at the roots. Mm. I just dealt with the cosmetics. And, you know, sometimes I think when the Lord works in our lives, Sometimes he works on the stuff that we can see, you know, the presenting weeds, if you will. And he changes things in a big time hurry, which is awesome. But the roots, that's the tough part. Mm. You got to get the roots out or the weeds are going to grow back. And so the Lord isn't content just to do superficial change in our walk with God. He wants to make us like Christ in the innermost being, in the innermost parts if you will. That's, that's where, where God really does his work, according to Psalm 51. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, you know, when we see this, uh, Mike, and, and we find ourselves going, boy, I, I want to serve the Lord and I want to do the right things, but boy, sometimes I don't. Well, A, welcome to the club, because we're all like that uh, in one way or the other. B, the, it's interesting how it says, a wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The next line is, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, so then with my mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Mm. In other words, God knows the battle that we're in. Uh, My Romans professor at Talbot Seminary uh, once uh, said something, and I'll never forget it. He said, Romans 7 is the tension of living in two ages at once. Mm. Because the Bible tells us we're already seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, according to Ephesians chapter two, right? We're already home as far as God's concerned. That's called positional righteousness. Mm -hmm. Nothing's going to separate us from God. 
we are just as if we'd never sinned because of the blood of Jesus Christ. But there's also practical righteousness that the Bible speaks of, where you know we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we might be healed. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The whole discussion in Ephesians about putting off the old man that is being corrupted and putting on the new man, which is being renewed in the image of the one who created it. Uh, that's a process. And uh, you know the fact that we are, uh, according to Ephesians 2.10, uh, God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not just external stuff like, well, now that I'm a Christian, I should be baptized. Or now that I'm a Christian, you know, like you say, Mike, I should be reading my Bible or going to church. All those things are important. But the most important work that God is going to do is he's going to make us into his masterpiece. He's going to paint on the canvas of our lives the image of Jesus. And when I realize that's my calling, when I realize that that's God's purpose in my life, that gets me excited. Mm. You know, that, that, that causes me to go, wow, here I have this day. What does it mean for me to yield my life to the Lord and become a little bit more like Jesus? And, and you know, if you're like me, Mike, you know, maybe you wake up in the morning, you ask the Lord to, to bless you and fill you with the Holy Spirit. By t- 10 o'clock, you're honking the horn and telling some guy in front of you in traffic what you think of him. You know, what we do is we turn back to God and, and we ask again for that filling and anointing of the Holy Spirit as often as we need to do it. And, you know, I really believe that Christian maturity, that the best definition of it that I have ever heard is the shortening the duration of the time it takes from when we get off track in trusting God and taking life into our own hands and turning our lives back over to God. If I can shorten that time span, hmm. uh, then I'm getting somewhere in my walk with God. Now, uh, here on earth, if we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth's not in us. That time span, Mike, it's never going to hit zero. You know, we're always going to have those stumbles and those falls, but we can minimize the distance by remembering these things, by renewing our hearts on the word, by having accountability-oriented relationships with other believers we know are praying for us or, or that will pray for us if we stumble and we fall. Uh, these are all things, you know, tight fellowship, you know, uh, opportunities for worship where we taste and see that the Lord's good so that we don't say no to the vain things that charm us most, but we say yes to something better. And that is that nearness and that, that intimacy with God. And, and I think if we, we get on that path, then we're going to find uh, almost uh, surprising to our own selves, that gap of time between taking life into my own hands and turning back to the Lord. Slowly but surely, it's going to become shorter and shorter. And the quality of our abundant life in Christ is going to grow uh, greater and greater. Hmm. But uh, again, I know that there are people that mean well, that will, you know, just slam people as far as their stumbles and their falls and how dare you and, you know, Jesus rose from the dead and you, you can't even get out of bed, you know, oh, beat me up, <laughs> beat me up some more. Um, they mean well, but these kind of, um, you're pathetic kind of exhortations, mm-hmm. um, don't, the, the flesh just feeds into that. You know, it just makes the flesh stronger in a sense because self-pity is a, thing the flesh trades in Mm -hmm. you know it's the opposite of true humility so you know we have to be careful what kind of input we're getting who's influencing us in our walk with god what teaching we're sitting under scripturally 
are we cultivating our own relationship with the Lord where we're understanding more and more about his character and how he relates to us on a personal level? These are things that will really transform our lives. Mm. You know, me focusing in on, oh, man, God must not be pleased with me because I only pray 28 minutes today instead mm -hmm. of 30. You know, that's not going to get me where I need to go. <clears throat> I unfortunately was probably stunted tremendously in my growth as a new believer, being influenced by the thinking that Romans 7 was <clears throat> the Christian, not the Christian life, but life under the law. And I worshipped the a form, the forms of Christian living, not the relationship of having. Right. Of, and it became almost like a legalism where I, if I didn't pray, if I didn't re reach my preconceived standard, my own bar, which was irrelevant to what God's bar was for my, which was Christ, but right. <clears throat> I felt like a failure and lived in constant guilt. Yeah. And I had never heard anyone suggest the kinds of things that, that we teach here at church that, no, we're not lowering the standard for Christian living. We're keeping it right where it belongs, the person of Jesus, but we're also recognizing, like Paul did in Romans 7, I still have a sin nature, and we can't be, right. um, you know, shooting the sheep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and I mean, uh, it's so interesting when he said, wretched man that I am, in the original language, that was uh, a standard call in a battlefield situation where you were wounded and you're calling for a medic. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're mortally wounded, you'd say, you know, wretched mm -hmm. man that I am. Wow. <laughs> yeah. and, I wrote, uh, and, and the Lord is always there to heal us. In my Doctrine of Holiness class with the ministerial studies with a Wesleyan denomination, <clears throat> um, I wrote a commentary on Romans 6, 7, and 8. And I argued for that position, and my professor gave me his book that he published for this for his seminary classes. And he wrote in it, "You'd be a fine theologian someday." <laughs> I, I, I got all the answers right, and uh -huh. you know, uh, <clears throat> I said I guess exegeted the text well, or at least in his opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, it was it didn't make sense uh, at the time. But it pointed you toward that legalism. It did, and I didn't realize that you know. Paul in Romans 6 sets a standard of how can I who have died to sin still live in it? Do not offer the members of your body, so please aim right. for perfection. Right. But realizing Romans 7, we still have a sin nature. Romans 8, there's grace. Yeah. And so it, it when you look at it, and it's and then Romans, he goes on later in the book, in Romans 12, giving sort of solutions on how to get there by offering your bodies as a living sacrifice so that you may know what the will of God, that which is good and perfect. Yeah. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think is to have sound judgment. He didn't say, don't think of yourself. He just said, don't think of yourself more highly, but be wise about it. Yeah. It just It makes so perfect sense in the whole... Such a. I remember hearing Josh McDowell said, if he was ever stranded on an island and could only have one book of the Bible, it'd be the book of Romans. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and, and again, as a recovering adult child of an attorney, it is just this masterful case for salvation by mm. grace through faith that there really is no alternative to it all. And he doesn't leave uh, any question untended to, including what about the fate of people, the Jewish people, who mm -hmm. put all their eggs in that <clears throat> basket. Uh, does God still have a plan for them? And the answer is a resounding yes. Yeah. They're not going to find the righteousness they're looking for. But, Romans you know, um, <laughs> one time I, I, I preached a sermon, and the title of it was called Why I Bat Left-Handed. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and the, the, the gist of the sermon was this. When I was growing up, uh, my brother, who was 13 months older than I, than I was, and I were Dodger fans. You know, we grew up in Southern California. We'd go to the Dodger games. And my brother's uh, 
favorite player was Jim Lefevre, who was a second baseman for the Dodgers, who won the Rookie of the Year. Well, my favorite player was Wes Parker, who was a first baseman for the Dodgers. And, uh, you know, we'd always have these long debates about whose hero was better and all of this. But, you know, I uh, fell in love with baseball and uh, being a Dodger fan and by extension, making Wes Parker my hero when I was about seven years old, right when I first started playing baseball. Well, naturally, I'm right-handed and uh, I've always been. But Wes Parker... My hero was left-handed. And, uh, you know, again, um, I didn't play first base uh, in the Little League teams I was on, but I had a first baseman's glove. Why? Because Wes Parker uh, was a first baseman, and he had a first baseman's uh, glove. And and the the reason I called the sermon why I bat left-handed is this. You know, even though it would have been natural for me to bat right-handed, I learned to bat left-handed and still bat left-handed to this very day because Wes Parker was left-handed and he hit left-handed and he was my hero. Mm. I wanted to be just like him. Now, no one came to me and said, you know, well, Scott, in order for you to be a good baseball player, we want you to learn how to use a first baseman's mitt when you're in the field. We want you to uh, learn uh, how to play first base. Uh, we want you to learn how to bat left-handed, even though you're natural right-handed. No one ever said that to me. Hmm. No one had to say that to me because I so looked up to this man. I wanted to be just like him. You know, the funny thing is, and this is where the sermon came in, and we talk about the whole idea uh, of falling in love with Jesus as the key to real growth in our walk with God, hmm. is this, when you fall in love with Jesus, you know, when you, you begin to take in what our friend Gail Irwin called in his classic book, the Jesus style. You know, why do I want to be forgiving towards people? It's so unnatural for me. It's not something I do very easily. Because Jesus did, you know. Why do I want to change everything about my life? I'm so used to doing things over here in this direction, you know, to serve my own selfish desires. Why do I want to give that up and consider other people more important than myself? Because Jesus did, you know. And, And that whole idea of focusing in, on the person of Christ, falling in love with the person and character of Christ so that, that you, you, you become almost an expert on how Jesus did things, how he related to people, you know, how he lived his life. The, the guiding motivation and that admiration, that love, that, mm. that, that respect, that boy, you know, uh, I, I don't mean to sound a little um, sacrilegious, we'll probably get letters, but <laughs> just to be able to say, Jesus, you're my hero. Mm. Man, just like a little kid looking up at a major league baseball player and saying, you're my hero. I want to be just like you. Um, That's the key to the Christian Mm. life. Well, I think that's the attitude we're supposed to aim for. I mean, Romans 8, or I'm sorry, yeah, Romans 8, he talks about how we were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Yeah, that's that's the deal. That's the ultimate purpose for us. Yeah, that's the deal. And the more we fall in love with that process, the farther we're going to get. Amen. Well, thank you for your question. Um, S.A. Eagleton yeah. wants to know. Hey, I say. <laughs> uh, in First Corinthians, in, in Corinthians, we see a lot of immoral, uh, immoral sexuality, and everyone in the church appeared to be cool with it. Why isn't we don't hear of anybody coming under conviction of the Holy Spirit for such behavior? Well, um, 
you know, SA, I would say that this is another one of those examples where growth needed to happen. Remember who the Corinthians were. To Corinthianize, this was a word uh, that was developed in Greek, uh, was to behave as the lowest, most debauched kind of party animal. Uh, they, they even invented a word characterized on the way Corinth was. You know, Corinth, it was a port town, uh, lots of sailors in and out of there, shore leave and all of that. Uh, it had the Temple of Aphrodite, which was a temple that uh, facilitated worship through temple prostitution. And when these uh, temple prostitutes weren't uh, facilitating worship, they were out working the streets. And, you know, there was really no excess of the flesh that any Corinthian denied themselves. Even the other people in the Roman Empire say, well, we're no great shakes, but at least we're not like those Corinthians over there. Uh, so when the Corinthians became believers, there was a lot of stuff, a lot of baggage they brought with them from the world. You have to understand, you know, it's not like us who grew up at least in a country that used to be founded on Judeo-Christian morals uh, with some semblance of Ten Commandments and right and wrong and all of this. They lived in a thoroughly paganized culture. And because they lived in this thoroughly paganized culture, uh, literally, uh, they had to start from step one as far as really understanding what it means to have a relationship with God. And so when we see, you know, for instance, you know, Paul calling out the Corinthians uh, for their sins, it's interesting how he does it in balance because he starts out by complimenting them, saying you haven't fallen short of any good gift of God. Uh, you know, God has blessed you immensely. Then after that, it's bam, 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 bam. You got to change this. You're doing this. You're missing the point here. You know, you're, you're uh, getting into uh, idol worship of, of pastors. That's got to change, uh, you know, and, and it's just correction, 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 correction. And one of the biggest corrections is uh, this immorality that was going on in the church uh, that uh, featured a guy who was actually living in sin. Some people say it was his mother-in-law or his stepmom. Uh, it, whatever it was, it, it made the Gentiles say it wasn't even named among the Gentiles. So most people believed it was an incest, you know, an actual incestuous relationship. Mm -hmm. But the Corinthians were like, well, man, we're full of grace, you know, well, God will forgive them. And, you know, just, you know, no, no big deal. You know, uh, you know, what you do with your body doesn't really affect and God, uh, boy, Paul goes to town. Don't they even indicate that they bragged about it? Yeah, they were boasting, saying, yeah, you know, look how hip and with it intolerant we are. Uh, but Paul says, no, 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 no. Um, this guy's going to get uh, slammed. I mean, spiritually slammed. Paul makes a statement, I'm going to turn such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit might be saved mm -hmm. in the day of Christ Jesus. People ask, well, what does that mean? Well, maybe kind of like Job. Uh, that hedge of protection that Satan found so frustrating around Job, that God has around his people, was taken away. Satan could just have at this guy in whatever way he saw fit. Um, that's possible. Uh, you know, I, I really don't want to find out mm -hmm. personally what it means to have, you know, your flesh turned over to Satan. He wanted, to, he wanted to sift Peter like wheat, and yeah. uh, it sounds like this guy probably was sifted some way, well, shape, or form. <laughs> but, but get this, um, that's where we leave the discussion in mm. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 2, mm -hmm. the Apostle Paul turns around and says, hey, this guy's repented. You know, restore him. Don't add sorrow to his sorrow. We're not ignorant of Satan and his schemes. 
Now, I think it's really interesting that Paul says that mm -hmm. because if the wicked one can't get us from falling into legalism, then he will get us from falling into licentiousness. So here's licentiousness. The Corinthians were allowing anything to go on. Go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, we got to correct this. Let's hammer this guy. You've embarrassed us in front of the apostle Paul. You know, how dare you show up here at church again? No, Paul's saying, no, the goal here is restoration. Mm. And if this guy has repented, he's brought forth fruit in keeping with repentance. You guys have repented from your sort of laissez-faire attitude. Read 2 Corinthians 7. Paul talks about that. Um, there was a process that had gone on there. And, and I guess the, 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 the bottom line of this, this whole deal and how it applies to us uh, is, is this. You know, we oftentimes will find ourselves in a place where we'll be on one extreme or the other. You know, we'll either be entirely too tolerant or entirely too intolerant uh, of people's lives and, and, and their, their fallenness and their, their, their things. You know, other people's sin always looks worse on, uh, on them. Our, our own sin always looks worse on other people than it does on us. So, you know, when we see the Corinthians turning and changing there, we have to realize that we're all in process. Uh, the Corinthian church wasn't a perfect church, but it was a progressing church in the best sense of the term. They were willing to deal with these issues and not just uh, kind of blow off Paul and say, well, you know, that's just your take. Okay, God says it. We got to change. That's a huge, huge step of growth. Hmm. And I'm <clears throat> glad that you pointed that out because some people have argued that he's talking about someone else. And But I've always thought, I think Paul's talking about the same guy. Yeah. The second yeah. letter. Yeah, well, there you go. Thank you. Well, uh, let's see if we can do a... Well, we're out of time We're out today. of time. Yeah, we are thank you so out much. of time. <laughs> well, we'll be here uh, same place, same time uh, tomorrow. God bless you. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.